Welcome to Street Knowledge with Chris Graham. Welcome to the podcast. It's Chris Graham. This is Street Knowledge. We're going to talk a couple of important topics. Steven Strasburg on his way back, we hope, if you're a Nats fan, I am, so I hope, uh, to D.C. Uh, Makes a rehab start last night in Fredericksburg. Our, Our colleague Scott German was on hand for that. And then Scott and I are also way too big of Better Call Saul fans for our own good. In the second half of the podcast, we'll talk about Better Call Saul in the midseason finale. Um, Scott, I think I'll save the important one for last. Let's talk Steven Strasburg. We're going to talk <laughs> uh, with Strasburg. And this is our way, by the way, for our listeners out there. We're recording this uh, as Virginia is currently getting pasted. 7 nothing now in the third inning. Florida State up in the ACC First game of the ACC tournament. This will pretty much end Virginia's run in the ACC tournament already. One, one, one game in, um, so we're coping. Uh, but Scott, you were uh, you were in Fredericksburg last night and uh, got a chance to not only watch Steven Strasburg but also talk with him after his uh, his effort. Um, talk about the experience. What were some of your impressions of uh, of being there last night? Wow, Chris. Um, for, actually, it's a First time I'd been to the Virginia Credit Union Stadium there in Fredericksburg, which opened in 2020. Unfortunately, it didn't. It was scheduled to, but um, because of the pandemic, they they didn't have a, a minor league season. Um, and 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 I'm not on their payroll, but I tell you what, if if you're within an hour and a half drive of that of that area, which if you even if you're in Waynesboro, you are. Um, that is a really cool venue, and I would I would recommend it 150 percent because um, it's it's a safe area, it's clean, it's a nice stadium. It's uh, prices for food were very reasonable. Admission, I think you could have bought a ticket for as low as four dollars last night. You can get great seats for ten or twelve. Um, it was just a great atmosphere. They, they, they've done a great job there in Fredericksburg for, for just having a team for two years. Uh, and then last night, of course, was the, uh, was the Strasburg appearance, which they had a record-breaking crowd. I mean, there wasn't a seat to be found. If there were, they weren't using If someone wasn't using it, they were standing somewhere. <laughs> um, so it was uh, – it was really, um, it was really a nice, uh, nice evening, and I and I and I really got to, to, I feel kind of bad. I felt bad on the way home. I think I mentioned it in my story. I've never really been a, a, not, a not a national. I'm not a Nationals fan, but I don't hate the Nationals like I hate the Yankees or the Red Sox. Okay, <laughs> I, if the Nationals win, fine. If they lose. It's not really a big deal to me. And I've never really been a big Strasburg fan because I haven't taken time to get to know the team. But wow, what a what a what a good lesson I learned last night. Don't judge a book by his cover. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at Steven Strasburg, the competitor, he's he's kind of he's not Max Scherzer, but he looks like he's just this guy that's just wants to be left alone. He's kind of snarly. And uh, he's he's 100 percent opposite he's he was so cordial to the to the few that to literally had him to ourselves last night three uh, myself and two other uh, media representatives one for the washington post one for the fredericksburg freelance star and chris 
he didn't want to go. And he had his, he, he was packed and ready to go. Uh, his car was 20 yards in front of him uh, or his SUV. And uh, which is another complete story. Um, and I got to see a side of him that I'd never known because I hadn't taken the time to know. And uh, what a, what a, what a professional he is. What a true professional he is. I got every bit of that $37 million. I got to say too, Scott, you got a good side of Strasburg. I just did a podcast earlier this afternoon with um, uh, a writer, sports writer and author, David driver. And he covered the Nats for seven years. And he said, when I told him uh, after our podcast was over, I said, yeah, yeah, we had Scott at the uh, the game last night, talked to Strasburg. He said, well, he probably got two words out of him. I said, no, yeah. he said he was very gracious. Yes. And so a guy who covered him for seven years, including the World Series year, um, you know, maybe maybe the last couple of years, uh, you know, where he's been injured and he only made three major league starts, maybe he's mellowed a bit in that respect. But let's let's get the baseball part out of the way first, and then we'll talk, you know, about, you know, you chatting with him and, and Barry Saluga and, and those after the game. Um, uh, you, you texted me frequently during the game. One of the thing, I, one of the things I asked you before the game, Hey, let me know what his fastballs are. Uh, I want to, I want to know because his velocity is very important to me. I'm a Nats fan again. And, um, he, you know, his fastball, uh, you know, in his earlier years, he would average in the 95, 96 range in 2019, uh, his fast, his average fastball velocity, according to fan graph, still 94.1. Um, you kept texting me last night, numbers like 90, 91, uh, an occasional 92. I think you said eventually maybe 194. So velocity, velocity wasn't there. Command wasn't there, but he got his work and he did throw 61 pitches last night. Yeah. And, and, and I wasn't really, wasn't paying a lot of attention to that until you, you asked about it. And then I started kind of um, giving it a little more attention and, and he afterwards, I think, I think the, the, uh, uh, the writer from the post, Barry, um, I can't Barry Saluga. Saluga, I think he had asked him, and, and this is, if there were, if there were, if there, excuse me, if there, if there was one moment during that little, uh, media gathering that, that he, that he was a little bit, um, uh, uh, taken back or some being Strasburg, it was when Barry had said, um, did you hold back any on your velocity? Uh-huh. And Strasburg basically uh, really quickly uh, uh, replied, no, that's not how we work this. That's not how I do it. I'm not going out there and not throwing as hard as I'm capable of throwing. So if anyone thinks that, okay, well, maybe he wasn't trying to throw 94, 95 consistently. I don't think, I think that's what he meant is that, no, he wasn't. He did, he did hit 94 a couple of times. Um, but, but for the most part, he was in the 90, 91 range, which to me doesn't sound like a big deal. But knowing major league hitters, that's a big deal, isn't it? Well, I mean, yeah, he, he's a guy now, of course, early in his career, and we'll talk later about even before his major league career, you talked with him about a, one of his college games. Um, I mean, he was known as a guy who threw upper 90s uh, and, and as a starter through consistently in the upper 90s. And you see a lot of start, and back then, a guy as a starter throwing upper 90s consistently throughout a game, you know, six, seven, eight innings of a game was pretty rare. And it, that was before the Cinder Guard, Jacob DeGrom era. 
um, where, where guys now, of course, those guys are hurt a lot, uh, but they, they try to throw, you know, that hard all the way through you, you, you know, you might see relievers throw that hard, but your starters would try to throw, you know, not they throttle back basically just because they're trying to, you know, throw hundred pitches, 120 pitches, whatever, and last longer in the games. Um, but that said, he still, he was able to throw, you know, 100, 120 pitches at with average fastball, 95, 96. And even as, as recently as 2019, 94, um, you know, if, if, you know, as guys age, they tend to lose guys differently you know they don't need to rely on stuff as much as craftiness and so one question i guess i'd have for 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 strasburg would be all right if your if your fastball is going to be 90 91 um you know and, and but you've been out for the last two years uh you know what would you maybe have learned to, to get around losing velocity and we'll we'll find that out i guess when it gets back to the big league level um he was he didn't have great command he walked three in the first inning he ended up you know getting tagged with the loss after giving up a two-run double but what about his off-speed pitches um what was your sense and i, I you know i read that uh, i think in your story he bounced a couple of um off-speed pitches uh, in the dirt um sometimes you do that intentionally though i don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing but what, what was your sense and what, what did he say afterwards if he was asked about that his his command of his his secondary stuff well he really didn't i don't believe he was asked about it but that to me was where his control was at he was having more control issues with his off-speed stuff. His his 91, 92 mile an hour fastballs were were pretty much in the strike zone or or just out. Uh, but he had a couple of very awkward off-speed pitches that you know I, that were in the dirt. Um, um, catcher had to stand up, move you know, to, to basically to catch one. Um, and I looked at the scoreboard with the velocity uh, speed pitch and it was, those pitches were like 84, 85. So I'm assuming those were his off speed pitches. Yeah. That's actually not bad. Uh, the, the, you know, your off speed pitches tend to be eight to 10 miles an hour difference. So if he's throwing his off speed stuff at that level, that might indicate his fastball has, has more potential um, because, you know, he throws a slider and th- throws a change up. Um, if his, if his slider and changeup were in that range, that's actually not a bad thing at all. The command will come. I mean, it, part of going to a rehab assignment, he's probably got another one coming up on Sunday. Part of having a, a, the rehab assignments is to get your touch back. I mean, you, your, your, your stuff in the bullpen is one thing, but having it with batters and a crowd and, you know, implications and that kind of thing is entirely another. Um, you, you, you talk with him afterwards about, um, the important thing wasn't as much how he felt last night, even though that was, I'm sure, asked about how he felt after the game last night. But he talked about, I think he said, how he would feel this morning would be really important as well. Yes, he said that to him was uh, that he felt good last night. And believe me, uh, uh, the three of us got to – we weren't able to exactly see him in his post, post-game um, um, uh, workout, but – According to the um, PR guy from the Fredericks, uh, Fredericksburg uh, Nationals, Eric Bach, uh-huh. uh, he was told by the Nationals folks that he has a very uh, regimented post-game workout, and it consisted of um, when his out when his start was finished, of coming into the locker room, uh, going through a, a pretty uh, strenuous workout, and we know he was on an exercise bike. 
We know he was doing weights uh, because you could hear him. Uh-huh. And, and then he had a very uh, strict post-game meal okay. that he that he um, that he ate. And then about 40 minutes, I'd say 45 minutes after his start, uh, we were told that he was going to grab a shower and he'd be with us in 15 minutes. And 15 minutes later, there he was dressed and ready to walk out the door. I mean, it was like clockwork. And, you know, that wasn't something that he just he just started doing. I, I'm sure these these guys are creatures of habit. Yeah. And uh, it was I've covered a lot of baseball. I covered uh, the Orioles in a couple of World Series. And now you don't have that access at the major league level to the players. You just don't. And to have that access to be in a to be off in another room <laughs> thinking you're listening to your listening and waiting on a on a 2019 World Series MVP uh, player uh, to, to waiting to heat for him to finish, to come out and talk to you. That was pretty cool. And I, and I, and I asked my, or I told my wife about it again. Um, it's amazing what wives don't know, you know, or, and I said, told her about how his off his, his workout regimen after the game and, and all he went through, and she said, it's amazing what some people would do for $37 million a year. <laughs> you know, you telling me about his workout regimen reminded me of, of what I used to read about Nolan Ryan, the, the Hall of Fame pitcher, straight, you know, the strikeout king, and he always will be the strikeout king of all time. Um, and how his, you know, and of course, back in Ryan's day, you'd throw 150 pitches without even blinking an eye and then work out. He would work out for two hours after a game, working his legs, working his arms, but mostly his legs, actually. He's, his, his legs were key, he thought. Um, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s riding an exercise bike after starts and keeping those legs sharp. And so it reminded me of that and, you know, how, how things change. They also, they also stay the same often in that sense. Um I'm a lot of what I'm going to ask you about is from our text last night. One thing that stood out to me was you mentioning that, you know, after his first inning, he was standing on the top of the dugout steps with the other, the low a farmhands, basically. Yeah. Those are truly the farmhands. And that caught your attention. Just the fact that here's this guy, world series MVP, $37 million a year. And, and he's there. I mean, he's there with guys in low a 18, 19 year old guys for most, for the most part. Yeah, that and that's some of the things that I really uh, those little what are the what's the word uh, is I don't know if any any of secrecies is yeah, the exact yeah. word, but so the first play uh, the first thing that caught my attention about okay maybe this Strasburg guy isn't that a bad isn't such a bad dude is that he um, uh, I think I think the Salem Red Sox had a second and third with two outs in the first so Strasburg was on the ropes or the second. He was on the ropes in first and second, actually. Uh, and a Red Sox batter just hit a scorcher um, between the second baseman and first baseman. The first baseman for the for the Nats made a just a great play. And from his knees threw a strike to Strasburg, who was, you know, react, uh, reaction, I guess, just covering the bag, right? Yeah. And – when the play was over, Strasburg pumped his fist towards the first baseman like, like you would see in a major league game. Like, yeah, hey, yeah. dude, what a play. You just saved me two runs, yeah, which he yeah. did. You yeah. just saved my ERA two runs. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then and then I, I glanced down. I think it was when the Nats, uh, when the Frederick Nats, Fredericksburg Nationals were at bat, and I looked down and then their dugout and all their players were up on the top step as major leaguers do. They don't set in the dugout rarely. Um, why they don't, I don't, I don't understand because we know how fast. I guess it's because they can get out of the way of a foul ball pretty quick. Uh, uh, their reaction might be their reaction speed might be a little better than ours, but. He was standing, uh, leaning over the rail, just one of the guys, just one of the dudes. And and I thought, you know, that's pretty cool. He could be sitting on the bench. He could be looking at his notes. He could be doing whatever. He could be isolating himself from the team. But that night, uh, Steven Strasburg was a Fredericksburg national. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, big crowd you mentioned, and then um, as as might be expected, you said when you got back up uh, from interviewing Strasburg, game's still going on. I mean, he didn't wait until after the game to talk to you, you reporters. He he uh, he, uh, he he left when it was time for him to leave. Um, when you got back up, uh, the crowd had thinned out considerably, right? Chris, it didn't. No, I, I never went back to my because the media, uh, the the press box was on the second floor. Okay, okay. Not quite as difficult to get to it would be if you were going to the to the Nationals press box or something, you know. Yeah. But uh, when when the manager of the of the Nationals came out out. And you knew that his day was done because the pitch count was at 61. And yeah. I think he was on a 60 pitch count. The fans knew it. They began, they stood up, they, they, they clapped, they started applauding. And Strasburg walked off the field, tipped his cap as he, as he crossed over the foul line. And by the time he got to the dugout, it looked like a fire drill exit. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> That quick, and, huh? <laughs> and, and I was thinking, those poor players, you know, there's these 18, 19-year-old kids, 20-year-old kids, maybe 21, and uh, the Red Sox players were standing on top of their dugout and looking, and they were, like, high-fiving each other. Like, okay, <laughs> we knew this was coming. It's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had 6,000 people. Uh, some of them probably had never played in front of that, unless you unless you're a Division One eight Power Five player, you probably never played in front of 5,800 or 6,000 people. Um, but I would say that by the time that game ended, by the time I got back to the parking lot, which which I was walking back to my car doing the seventh inning stretch, uh-huh, uh-huh. there were about eight cars in the parking lot. <laughs> Is all right. That says it. Uh, uh, and, and among them wasn't anybody from the Nationals. Uh, so here's the expectation, Scott. I'm, I'm, I'm lofting you a softball here. I'm setting you up. I know what the end of the story is going to be, but I want you to tell it. Um, I'm expecting, I mean, you know, there's a guy from the Nats, the big Nats, that is, not the Fred Nats, but I'm expecting there's somebody from the, Fred, uh, from the Washington Nationals who were playing the Dodgers last night. This game, by the way, the Fredericksburg Nationals game, much more important to the Washington Nationals and the Washington Nationals game was because the season's already written off, but it's important that Steven Strasburg get healthy again. But um, uh, he, uh, so, so who, who was there to pick him up? Who was there from the Nationals, Washington Nationals to pick him up? Well, there was the, the assistant GM for the Nationals was there, uh-huh. but he left um, earlier. Okay. He must have come. He must have arrived at about the same time, but he was going uh, to the 
SEC tournament. Okay. According to the PR guy from the from the uh, Fredericksburg Nationals, uh, there was no one. Steven Strasburg drove himself from DC to Fredericksburg. And he got in his SUV, very nice SUV, by the way, and did like just everyone else and drove through that parking lot and weaved his way down a couple of streets and within five minutes was on 95 North heading to D.C., which to me, I just was about, I've never been more astounded. Here is your your. Your franchise, right? Your franchise, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is your franchise. He is the guy probably more responsible for Trey Turner, Anthony Rendon, Max Scherzer not being nationals now than anyone. And you just send him on his way to Fredericksburg. Yeah, basically. By himself. He could have stopped at Wawa on the way back and got a pretzel for all that. You got a GPS, find your way down there, find your way home. Um, but would, would that not surprise you? Oh, I, I totally expected that he'd be in the back of an SUV, not in the front of driving one. Um, you you brought up something there, though, about the, he's the face of the franchise. Um, I think one of the questions post-game was, and I think it came from you, um, was um, does the fact the Nationals lost last night, they're 14-30 and 30 now. Um, this team is not going to rally like they did in 2019 and, and go to the World Series. This team is was supposed to be fourteen and thirty, maybe not quite fourteen and thirty, but there's you know not, not a lot of expectations. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, does does the fact that uh, this season is already written off by the big club have any impact on how quickly he might rehab? Chris, uh, great question, and and I actually asked him that. Yeah, and I actually was thanked by Barry. Um, Savinia, Saruga, yeah, Saruga, yeah, of the of the Washington Post for asking that question because he said he'd forgotten. Uh-huh. And my question was, and I and I tried to be um, somewhat diplomatic about it, yeah, because I kind of asked it impromptu and I really hadn't thought about it, and I didn't want to come out and say, uh, Stephen, the Nationals suck this year. Does that have anything to do? with how fast you come back, how fast you return to the majors. But I, I, and I was a little more diplomatic. I said, they did, they don't appear to be a contending club. Yeah. Um, That's year. very nice of you to say. <laughs> and it, it was. And, and, and does that fact play into your rehabilitation process and when you might feel as though you're ready or the club feels you're ready to pitch at the major league level? And he 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 didn't hesitate to say no. No, it 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 did not matter that he would pitch at the major league level when he was ready to pitch at the major league level, regardless of what position in the standings the Nationals uh, occupied. I'm a little surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Me because too. why why would you unless the, the Nationals feel that inevitably. He's got to pitch. He's got to go. He's got to go out on the mound. Uh-huh. What what good would waiting another complete, almost another year? What good would that do if he's if he's rehabbing now and he's throwing the ball 90, 90 plus miles an hour? Um, what good would that do? And the other thought is: Is there any possibility 
whatsoever. And I thought about this and I answered my own question, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. If he comes back and he's effective, is there any possibility a club would trade for him? I don't, I don't see anybody taking that contract on. But what if the nationals would eat some of the salary? I don't know that they would do that either. uh, Because if you're eating, if you're getting rid of Strasburg, you're getting rid of a guy um, to get prospects. That's what, you know, when you're rebuilding, as you know, you're an O's fan, you've been through a rebuilding for several years now. Um, if you're going to trade away assets, you want you want something back in return. I mean, unless what you're trying to get in return is simply um, salary flexibility, so, you know, luxury tax flexibility. Um, but you're not going to get anything in return, even if he comes out. I mean, if he's lights out again, if he's Strasburg of old, and if it, it, so, there's a possibility, perhaps, if you're he's a thirty-seven million dollar year guy. If you if you're willing to eat ten million dollars of that, but if you know, even that's only going to make it a $27 million a year guy. And he's 33 years old. I mean, that's, these are the things that had to come to mind when the Nats signed him back in 2019, re-signed him back in 2019 um, to that big contract is, is, you know, he is older. I mean, at that, t- at that time he was, he was 28 or 29, almost 30 years old. And um, so, no, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I think what you're hoping for is if you get 15 or 20 starts out of him this year, um, you use that as a bridge and then hopefully from a net standpoint, you hope that next year, Hey, okay, we got our number one guy back, you know, cause he's not going to be great at out of the gate. As we saw last night, even when he comes back to the major league level, he's not going to be great. But if you can get him rolling in August and in September and he can build off of that and he can be a legitimate number one guy again next year. And you've got Juan Soto maybe in his last year of his contract. Um, you're trying to persuade Soto to stay around long-term. Um, Strasburg can be part of that as well. So um, I think that's the strategy, but um, you, you know, they, if, if they, go, if they go the route of getting rid of Strasburg, that's probably a sign they're also going to be getting rid of Soto and completely rebuilding. And uh, you know, Nats fans don't want to see that. The front office probably doesn't want to see that until absolutely necessary anyway. Yeah. And I, I don't think, so, I don't think that because I believe if you asked every general manager of the, of the other 29 teams in the major leagues, they would all – the consensus would be that was a horrible um, decision to, to give a, an injury-prone pitcher uh, a salary, uh, uh, a, that kind of contract. And if you were to trade for him, unless the Nats would be willing to eat half of it, which I, I can't imagine, um, every team would still feel like that would be – a, a bad decision. So I don't, I don't look for that to happen, but on the flip side of it is, is even if a healthy Strasburg, how, how long is it going to be before the Nats contend again? Or now with the expanded playoffs, I think the difference between contending for a world series championship and being a contender for a playoff spot, that's a big difference, but when are they going to be how, – how far down the road is it going to be before Washington is a World Series contending team again? Three I years, think, five years? I think, the, I think the hope from that from Mike Rizzo, the general manager, is they can get a team in place as early as next year. They have to hope that um, – not World Series contender, but, but wild card playoff contender because they have to figure out a way to lure Juan Soto to want to stay there 
with a Harper like contract, a Harper or Trout like contract, you know, basically a lifetime contract. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine Juan Soto is going to want to sign with a team that's got five years left to, to rebuild. Yeah. So if, if the Nats, um, if, if things work out perfectly for the Nats and things rarely work out perfectly for anybody um, in life or in sports, but if they were to work out perfectly or close to perfectly, um, Nelson Cruz keeps improving his batting average and they can flip him for some more young guys. Um, yeah, Cruz is a pivotal trade piece. So is Josh Bell. Josh Bell's having a great year. Yes. Um, but Josh Bell uh, is, is another guy. Uh, he, if he continues doing what he's doing, you flip him at the trade down and you get more, you get more young guys. Yeah. Um, and, more- and Chris, both Cruz and Bell, this is the, the beauty of the designated hitter in both leagues, because now both of them, now they now they're open. Now both leagues are in play for them. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. All 20, all 29 other teams are in play for both guys, especially Cruz. Um, Cruz goes to a contender uh, that, that is looking clearly short term bell, I think can be a longer term guy for you. Uh, he's around 29 or 30 years old. So he's got, you know, several years, potentially at least a few years left um, to be very productive. Um, but those two things happen. Uh, if things, if, again, throwing out the perfect scenario for the Nats, if um, Strasburg gives you 15 or 20 starts and by August and September is, is doing really well, um, he's your number one starter next year. They can maybe figure out a way to buy Patrick Corbett out of his contract or, or dump him on somebody and maybe use, use that what you offered earlier. They can offer to pay some of his deal uh, and give him to a contender and uh, kind of get out from under the, the albatross of that Patrick Corbin deal um, and get and maybe get a prospect or two out of that. Um, they, you know, if, if you've got Strasburg as your number one starter and, and Soto as the linchpin of your lineup, um, I think you've got the makings of a team that can, you know, contend at least for a wild card spot. And don't forget, this team in 2019 went from the wild card game to winning the World Series. So um, you don't have to be the Yankees or the Dodgers and or the last year's Giants and win 100 plus games to win a World Series. If you can get in those playoffs, you can win a World Series. The Nats have proven that. So um, I think that's legit. But it, it, the the worst case scenario is. Strasburg gets hurt again. Um, they still flip Cruz and Bell, but they don't get much for him. Uh, and, and Soto decides to leave. That's the worst case. So somewhere in between is what reality is going to be. But somewhere in between includes Strasburg being an important part of the near future of the Nats. Yeah, and after having a chance to really get the same, uh, I hope he is part of the Nats. I think that the I mean, he may not be an uh, a Cy Young contender and uh, candidate anymore, but he can certainly be uh, a vital part of your pitching rotation. So let's talk about the uh, the the end of the interview, um, and I'll, I'll I'll bring it out this way. I want to reference a famous pro wrestling promo from Paul Heyman. Um, involved his involved the undertaker at the time the undertaker had been unbeaten at wrestlemania and and paul Heyman's was the manager of cm punk and at the time uh, uh undertaker was 21 and 0 at wrestlemania and paul Heyman said that cm punk was going to be the one to put the one in 21 and one so there was someone in 2009 that uh, there was a pitcher who pitched college baseball back then for san diego state he was 13 and 0 he was about to be the number one pick in the draft and someone put the one in 13 and one 
And you reminded Strasburg of who that one was last night. Uh, I did. Chris, it was a cool night in Fredericksburg, a uh, little misty rain falling at the beginning of the game. And I knew the weather wasn't going to be very great. So I decided to wear my lightweight rain jacket, which happens to be a UVA um, uh, jacket with the V sabers on the front left uh, lapel. And I had my, um, and I intentionally kept it covered during the interview with my, with my notepad, um, not wanting to uh, tip what I was going to ask Strasburg after the interview. So it, we were all done. Uh, he was picking up his, his uh, travel bag and uh, the two other riders had, had actually turned to walk away. And they quickly turned back when they thought that I was going to maybe ask a question that might be the coup of the whole of the whole press conference. You know how the media. Oh yeah, of course. Works. Yeah, we're, we're we're leeches in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this guy going to ask about uh, his eighteen illegitimate children or something? <laughs> you know, uh, which by the way, I have no clue. Well, yeah, I'm sure he doesn't. It. But so I, I he's said, a fine, you know, upstanding young man. Yes. He no. is. He, he looked like it. He really did. He looked like the guy you would love to have your daughter, you know, come bring home and introduce you to her. I would, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, <laughs> Says a man who has a daughter, he would. Right. Know, right. Have right. You, right. Uh, <laughs> who, who has, who has dated an NHL player I've been told, but I uh, didn't know anything about it until afterwards. So anyway, I, I digress <laughs> here. Um, um, so I said, Steven, I got to get something I want to show you. And I took my, dropped my notepad and I, held out my UVA jacket and my V saber proudly. And I said, does this bring back any memories? <laughs> and Chris, he was so polite. He looked at it and he kind of shook his head like, yeah, yeah, sure does. And uh, he said, um, you know, he said, uh, I, I remember that game. I really do. He said, I, uh, you know, I, I, all I know is, we got caught. We got caught by surprise by Virginia because we we didn't have a real good report on them, and the report we had didn't emphasize that they set on fastballs. And he said, "In that and and they did the entire game. They're good. They put the ball, the bat on the ball. They were a good hitting team." And uh, he said. Uh, but you know what? He said, funny thing about that game. And I look back and he said, there was, I gave up three home runs all season and all three of those guys <laughs> made the major leagues. And he kind of looked at me, he said, that's a pretty good legacy to have, isn't it? So yeah, he, 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 he definitely remembered that his last college start. He gave up two runs, uh, one each in the first two innings, struck out 15 eventually in seven innings. He left with a 2-1 deficit. Uh, Virginia scored three runs in the eighth uh, off a reliever to make it a 5-1 final. I think Steve Prosha got a home run in that game too. Uh, yeah, there, there, there was there, there was the one of the three one of the three home runs he gave up that season was in that game. Um, and um, uh, his one loss in, in college that season, and he went on uh, just a couple weeks later, uh, maybe a week later, was the number one pick in the draft. He became. Boy, he became the phenomenon. His his he he finally debuted in the bigs in 2011, I think it was. Um, 
with a 14 strikeout in six innings game, but every step of the way up the ladder, um, there were, it was kind of like field of dreams. You, you could see cars coming from the cornfields <laughs> because people wanted to see this, this guy pitch. He had that kind of aura about him and Virginia beat him. He was the only, Virginia was the only team to beat him uh, in that, uh, in that whole 2009 season, not just in the whole playoffs, uh, the whole 2009 season First Virginia's first run to uh, a college world series as it turned out too. So well, he was, he was very, he was uh, extremely uh, gracious with our, with us. And I'm very honored to have gotten to meet him last night. So let's switch gears. Uh, as we wrap up the podcast, we wanted to talk about this. Uh, we're, the, we, we can't really talk much until July after, after we do this discussion about better calls. Uh, the mid season finale was on Monday. And, uh, you know, you expect when something's, whether it's a season finale or this new concept of mid-season finale with a break in between a few weeks, you expect there to be a cliffhanger of some sort. And, you know, um, there were some good things with, uh, you know, it was a funny show for a lot of it. Uh, Saul and Kim, they're, they're, we, got, we saw the conclusion of the little game they were playing with Howard, uh, with uh, – you know, all the all the things they were putting into motion, planting the seed that he was involved in drugs and he, he was picking up hookers during his lunch breaks. And and, um, you know, how 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 it would play out in terms of the Sandpiper case. So that all played out. And you're thinking, all right, that's good. Uh, we, we know what we know now. Um, there was some good stuff with Lalo and Lalo. Um, uh, was in Albuquerque staking out the. Uh, the chicken man's uh, operation and he saw Mike leaving there and you're thinking, all right, that sets up something good for the second half of this last season. We got all the stuff we need. Um, and we're in the apartment with Kim and, uh, Saul and they're sort of celebrating their victory. And then I think Scott, the most shocking couple of minutes of TV I think I've ever seen. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, the, you know, I, I kind of had some, I, looking back on it now, I kind of felt like that something might happen uh, uh, in that, in that final scene in, in their apartment, because if you notice, the focus was on the candles. Well, there was a fo- crystal notice that my wife noticed that. Let me, let me, for our listeners out there. I mean, if you're, if you're still listening, you're a better call Saul fan too. And you want to hear what we have to say about it. So let me just do the journalism work here. Then we'll go to the editorial side of things. Um, so they're celebrating, you know, the, uh, and then Howard uh, invites himself to their, and he comes in with a bottle of wine to congratulate them on their victory. And he's haranguing them over, how did you do it? Why did you do it? What, what was your what was your goal here? To knock me down a peg? Um, you you cost yourself money. We had to settle, and you could have made more money because because Saul, uh, as as Jimmy was, uh, a, you know, the original lawyer who filed the case against Sam Piper. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? And you think that's going to be the end? Um, so that's that still would be a fine ending. I mean, sure here's would. Howard. He's confronting them. You know, they have to answer questions, and they're trying to shoo him away. And then someone else invites himself in. Lalo invites himself in. Now that came the hell out of nowhere. That's what, okay, now this is like house of cards, throw, in, throw Zoe in front of the train moment. And we don't even know what's going to happen. I'll tell you what I thought was going to happen, Scott. I want to know what your thoughts are on this. When, when Lalo comes in and he's got a gun, I'm thinking, we've been wondering what's going to happen to Kim. I'm thinking, oh, no, 
Kim finally gets it. Um, uh, a little, but I didn't see where he Lalo had that much of a um uh, hatred for Kim or Jimmy because if you remember earlier or Howard. In the seat, or Howard, he didn't even know Howard, right? Howard and Lalo had no connection at all. No connection, and, and, and see, here's why. In, in the in the split second, I've got to think this through. I'm thinking, here's why I was thinking Kim. Um, he wants to hurt Jimmy uh, slash Saul. So, what better way to hurt Jimmy slash Saul than to shoot and kill the most important person in his life? That 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 was a possibility, but I kept um, going back to when Kim and Mike met in the in the restaurant. And she expressed concerns about that. And Mike said, basically said, he's not interested in you. He's got bigger fish to fry. Well, uh, the, again, though, okay, that's that's Mike saying that. That's not Lalo saying that. No, that's not Mike Lalo saying Mike. that. Mike's on, the, Mike's on Jimmy's side. He's on Saul's side. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about Kim. And well, We all are because we don't want to see anything happen to dear Kim. So when the he pulls the trigger and he shoots Howard, whoa, where did that come from? And <sighs> and then that's it. That's the season, that's the mid-season finale. Um so many questions. I'm gonna be scarred forever for that. <laughs> and and I've I'm a I'm a TV person that is set through the Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Sons of Anarchy. Uh, uh, Fargo, um, the series, not Fargo, the movie. The movie is was great too. Well, and um, each each season of each season of Fargo has its own finale because it's a different cast of characters. So right. everybody dies in the end of every season of Fargo. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, um, the Ozarks. Oh gosh, Ozark. Yeah, which we could also spend another half yeah, hour on. Which we could. But so I, I, knowing that we were going to talk briefly on this. I, I, I researched something and looked at because I, I could not remember because I was so shocked by what happened to Howard. And I've loved Howard. I thought, I, I thought Howard's character was just absolutely played phenomenally by um, Fabian, I think is um, Patrick Fabian. Yeah. Patrick yeah. Fabian. What a, what a great performance. But so I don't think he came into the apartment. At first, I thought he was going to come in. He was drugged. He was, he was, maybe he was high. He was drunk. I thought he, maybe he was going to try to kill him. And that's, and they had to turn on him to, to keep him. But I don't think he was really, I think he just wanted to come in and set the record straight. Um, I think he did too. Just like, just like the boxing match that he uh, called for, for him and Saul a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like it was just a chance to, to sort of get a pound of flesh. He wanted to yell at them. He wanted to let them know he knew that they scammed him. And here you go. Here's your bottle of champagne. Celebrate let's, on. Let's this. celebrate it together and let's just move on. Yeah, please, um, please leave me alone, base. He even let them know, yeah. like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping in the guest house. My life sucks. Thank you for doing all that to me. Yeah, exactly. So if you go back, the, the title of that of that episode was Plan and Execution. Uh-huh. And if you, during his, 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 I don't know if it would be called a dissertation to, to Kim and Jimmy, or Saul, uh, if you notice one line, and I remembered it in the show, and I couldn't, I couldn't remember it word for word, but 
how fitting this one line was when he described Kim and 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 Saul or Jimmy. I don't know if you remember it, and I remembered it somewhat, but I looked it up, and the line was, and I won't try to say it in his voice, but you're perfect for each other. Yeah. You both have a piece missing. <laughs> and you know what? That is, it's turned out to be exactly the way I look at Jimmy and Kim now. There's something, they are perfect for one another, and there's something missing um, in each of them that, that makes them so uh, attractive to one it another. It makes them a, a complete whole, and that's what now we have to wonder because Kim isn't in, in Breaking Bad. You know, it, it'll be interesting to think that through. But no, yeah, the, you know, Kim, we found in the last episode, not, not not in the season finale, but last week's episode, we saw a little bit of her background. A smart kid, cute kid when she was, what, 11 or 12 years old, caught, for, caught shoplifting in a store. And her mom comes in and plays the concerned mom. And Scott, I did not realize uh, until watching the talking um, Saul afterwards that that actress actually wasn't um, – that wasn't uh, the actress who plays Kim. Uh, and why am I forgetting her name? Uh, Rhea Seahorn. Uh, that that was someone else who played Kim's mom. Who played? Looks dropped. She played dead. it. She played it to perfectly. Oh my God! I swore. I, I swore. We and, both did. We both said, "Well, you know who the mother was? It was Kim." And Chris, it was my, Rhea Crystal, my wife says, "Oh no, I knew all along. How did you know that they look exactly like?" Um, and uh, so, but the mother. Um, you know, played the concerned mom and I'll teach her a lesson. And then she shoplifts on her way out to the car. And so she, she got it honest, but, but Kim brilliant mind, but has that background of deviousness. And then we know Jimmy, I don't know if you would say brilliant mind, but he's got the deviousness. So um, boy, yeah, they were perfect. You know, think back a few seasons ago when they were running that scam on some guy in a bar and they were just trying to, you know, fleece him for his money and they ended up not even taking the money. They, they, they were able to get the guy to agree to agree to give them tens of thousands of dollars. And they just left it there because it wasn't about the money. It was about the game. And they had just just this game against Howard. Now it was about the money. I mean, Kim gave up the chance to go clean. She was on her, on the road literally to what, um, uh, was it Nebraska? I'm not sure. Uh, Nebraska or Colorado to a meeting where she was going to interview for a job heading up a nonprofit, her dream job, she said, and literally turned around in the middle of the road and came back to make sure this scheme to undo Howard, um, which would earn them millions, uh, would work out. And um, so, yeah, perfect for each other. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, that, that sums it all up. And I don't know if you picked this up or not. And, and I and I I didn't I couldn't put all the connect all the dots. But after reading a review about it, and I, I was able to connect my own dots. So early in the show, if you remember, um, there was a young intern for HHM. Okay, um, yeah, who spilled the drinks? Who, who yeah. came into the conference room and and Howard, Howard was already there and he was kind of st- he startled him and he spilled all the drinks on the floor. Yeah, dropped the cans of soda. Cans of soda. Yeah, and uh, and Howard points out uh, that the you can't just put them back in the refrigerator. Yeah, 
because they're 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 at a risk to explode, right? Yeah. But but then he shows him an age old trick. I, I was always talking about tapping it on top of the tapping it four or five times on top of the can. He shows him a trick about uh, putting the can down, rotating it, rotating it, and and I don't know some laws of physics will force the 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 bubbles away. So um, so to me that kind of defined Howard as to the type of person that Howard was, he's, he's, he's kind of a person that borders on being OCD maybe, yeah. or, or remember, a control freak. Remember who he said ta- taught him the trick. Yeah. Carl, uh, uh, Chuck. So yeah. Chuck yeah. taught him the trip. So, so the, so the, con- the control freak in Howard is that is being able to control something that you know could explode. Um, but also and, remember, I, I don't know if you're if it's in this where you have the, the if you have the lines up now, the young man because he said that man the, the man he it was who's who's this guy the, the the intern says who's this guy I've not been here that long who he is didn't that? even know who the M was yeah that's the M and he said he was a he was one of the most brilliant legal minds I've ever known right and the young man says I hope one day that people say that about me and then Howard had an answer to that I don't remember what it was but it was basically dismissive of of Chuck. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm reading a little bit of the notes that that I had pulled up online. That Chuck thought he could control everything until he couldn't, and then kept trying even after that until his brother ruthlessly showed him otherwise. Yeah, so it's um, more about. I think that that whole scene was more about. Yeah, it was about Chuck, um, and he because remember, I mean, he basically he he drove himself crazy. Um, yeah. He drove he 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 wouldn't leave his house because he was afraid of the sun. Um, he eventually burned his own house down with himself himself inside of it because he couldn't stand he couldn't stand it anymore. So yeah, and the brilliance of that show, Chris, is, uh, we keep talking about it. At that point, and I looked at the clock. Yeah, and I I knew it was in a one hour and eleven. I knew it was a um, <laughs> that it was eleven minutes after the hour that it was going to go off. Yeah, and it was it was ten oh eight. Yes, and at that point, I literally exhaled. <laughs> because I thought that the episode had gone on long enough yeah. that it kind of lured, lured us into this sense of false security that Layla wasn't going to explode during that episode. Yeah. Yeah. How could he? Cause there was only two minutes left and he's not logically going to be in this scene. This is how the there's two, no the, reason for him to be in that scene. Essentially for the most part, the two worlds have not collided. Saul represents Lalo and helps him get out on bail. But other than that, the two worlds have not really collided. You know, Howard ha- Howard does not know who this man in the living room with him is. Um, and then the two worlds collide rather violently, very briefly. Yeah, you do not want to know the the language that I used for the writers uh, for, <laughs> um, for conning us into that. It was it was brilliant and. So, okay, this is, I'm going to put myself on the record. You've heard me say this or, or seen me text this numerous times. My wife has heard me say this, but I'm going, to, I'm going to get it out there just so that when we go back in a couple months and point out how wrong I am, we can point out how wrong I am. I've got a theory. It's been developing for the, this whole season because, of course, Better Call Saul, we, we, know that, we know that the chicken man survives. We know that Mike survives into Breaking Bad. Of course, we know that Saul does. Um, we knew all along that Nacho didn't. He had a glorious death here a couple of weeks ago. I mean, that was a great way for a character to go out. 
We didn't know about Howard because Howard was a secondary character. Now we know he doesn't obviously make it to Breaking Bad. We just, but he doesn't also live uh, outside of Breaking Bad. He's just he's just gone. Um, Chuck, of course, early on was gone. The big question about Better Call Saul, really, from the moment we met Kim, has been, oh my God, we love this character. What happens to Kim? And the assumption has to have been all along, well, she's not in Breaking Bad, so she's dead. I've got a theory. I'm going to share it here. I'm putting myself on the record. I'm probably way wrong, but I'm going to put it out there. Um, my theory is, okay, so so uh, first scene of this new season, uh, this half season, um, we saw – yeah, for the for, for, yeah, first half of the of, of this the, this two part season um, was uh, one of those scenes, kind of like a throwaway scene. You always watch these scenes in Better Call Saul and wonder what the hell is going. Just like in Breaking Bad, what the hell does this got to do with anything? Um, it's a cleaning crew, and they're they're taking items out of a house. Um, it's a gold plated toilet. There's all these. I mean, there's millions of suits. It looks like these great ties, all this great stuff. And then you start to realize this is this is Saul's house. Um, you know, we know that at the end of Breaking Bad, he ends up uh, in, in uh, his, his, effectively a witness protection program, the vacuum cleaner salesman's witness protection program. And we know from previous opening scenes from the past few years that he ends up in Omaha, Nebraska, running a Cinnabon, famously. Um, we also know from one of those scenes that at some point, one day he's leaving work and he's confronted by two thuggish looking men who want to talk with him. And that's all we know. We don't know what happens after that. Um so at the end of the scene of this first season's opening scene that we think is meaning nothing, a little tchotchke type thing falls out of one of the boxes that, that has been packed and is being moved by the movers. And I had to look this up too, Scott, but uh, it, one of the, one of the um, uh, websites that follows this kind of thing closely noted that that was a tchotchke that, that Kim had given Saul um, a couple years ago, uh, as far as uh, as far as Better Call Saul's uh, timeline is concerned, so it was something he had saved for the five years of, of Breaking Bad. So he 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 still had a flame for her. Let's just say. So of course, at that time, you're thinking, well, he's remembering someone who's dead. I mean, because you don't. You, you're, we're all assuming Kim's dead. Well, then that, that that episode last week where we see Kim's mom admonishing young Kim for shoplifting. A cutaway scene at the end of that, when they're driving away from the mall, they have Nebraska license plates. So here's my theory, Kim, and, it, and, and it's a good theory. But I, I the more I, well, let me. Think I gotta give the theory this. before you can criticize. You can't criticize until I give it, because the people out here haven't heard it. The theory is Kim's Kim survives Breaking Bad. She gets that job, perhaps whatever job she wants, the dream job, he heading a nonprofit somewhere, and she's just off screen. And her and Jimmy are, are somewhat on the outs because she takes his job and he's got millions running this shady law operation in Albuquerque. And um, he uh, he chooses. This is my theory. I'm just, you know, he, he chooses when he's got to contact the vacuum cleaner salesman to get the hell out of Dodge after everything goes to hell and at the end of Breaking Bad. And when he's getting out, he chooses to be placed in Omaha because he knows that's where Kim is. And he wants to reconnect with her and whether or not they did so connivingly, like they, they did it as a plan or he just did it thinking, Hey, I'll reconnect with Kim in Omaha. I think he eventually does. And that's what blows his cover. And that's why those two guys come to see him uh, uh, in the Cinnabon at, you know, after work for him at the Cinnabon, because 
him not being able to stay away from Kim, his jig ends up being up. And that's what exposes him and leads to him, probably his demise. So I think that's my theory, Scott. I've laid it out there. Go ahead and pick it apart. I'm not. I'm not. I think it's I think it's it's very uh plausible that that could could be what happened. But here's mine now. Okay. And this is based on something I read that that Patrick Fabian is killed. He's dead. His character's dead, right? That's right. But he's but he still has a couple of scenes on the show. I have learned through my sources in Hollywood, Florida, uh, that he has a couple of scenes, okay, and they are in flashbacks. Okay, of course, they have to be because he's dead now. And if you remember, on at least two different occasions, Howard adamantly warm warns Kim that her husband was going to get her into trouble down the road. And I believe that Kim ends up being killed, that well, that's, she is an unattendable, unattended consequence. But that's too easy, Scott. That's, that's what everybody thinks. You can't, you can't just say, I think she's going to be, that's what everybody thinks. That's like betting on, um, that's like betting on Elon Musk to be the richest man in the world. We know he's the richest man in the world. You gotta yeah, give but me, we don't know. We don't know how she get or or. But or, you gotta give me specific. If you're gonna say, you gotta tell me how. I, I believe that that she's going. Uh, <laughs> she's going to die, in a way that maybe not at the hands of the bad guys, but in an accident of some type, in, in something that that she's helping Jimmy with that goes afoul. Here's what I'll say. And he what, is the responsible party for her death. Here's here's why I say I don't think she's going to die. And I mean another reason, in addition to my fabulous theory that will I'm no doubt will be proven wrong. Um, now, when when Saul was introduced to Breaking Bad, admittedly by the the series creators, uh, they they only thought he would be on for a couple of, of a couple of um, episodes. It was it, Saul was not intended to be a central character. He he. The character went over so well that they built him in, and then he became a, a central character in, in the as as the series went on. So, um, I say I say that to say the the original Saul um, and he, he, the Saul all the way through the series. I don't think that they even thought until maybe the last season that there may even be a prequel series. So, they weren't built. So the Saul character wasn't written with the knowledge that we have now, Hey, he had a girlfriend named Kim, an eventual wife named Kim. He had a brother named Chuck. He worked for HHM for a brief time as a mailroom guy, et cetera. Um, but I will say that if you want to maintain continuity, we never get a sense during breaking bad that this, that this Saul guy, we didn't know was really named Jimmy. We, we only knew a Saul Goodman. We never get a sense he's mourning anything. And so um, to be authentic to that series, like where would where what have we missed about this Saul guy having there there may be a line there may be a line that they'll tell us afterwards see we planted that seed in season six where he said this and that's what it was I don't know it right now 
But if you give me that, and if someone out there, I mean, so we both need to research this because if if Kim's going to die, Jimmy has to have a reason to mourn her and have mourned her and, and, and have done so even with a throwaway line in season five of Breaking Bad. Just if, if we could find that, I'll believe she's dead. Otherwise, I don't think she's dead. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. But but I mean, that's uh, if you go to Better Call Saul, um, there was never a mention of a girl of a wife. You right? mean Breaking Bad? Yeah. Well, there's uh, never Breaking Bad. Wife, but there's never a mention of a dead wife either. And he and I can't put my I can't remember back exactly but there were a couple of little new nuances that you had to really pay close attention to where he went out of his way to kind of compartmentize his life uh as as um jimmy mcgill and saul goodman you know what would really be mean uh of the creators uh as we're going through as we're getting ready for the second half of the last season of better call saul where they might give us because they've done a great job of, you know, I mentioned these scenes, the flashback scenes, the look ahead scenes, that kind of thing. What if they were to give us some look ahead scenes um, where Kim is on the periphery of what looks like breaking bad like stuff? And we're like, see, see, she does live. And then something were to happen off screen in breaking bad that we didn't ever know happened. I mean, they could, they could, these people have been known. I want to, I'm going to curse here for a second. They've been known to fuck with us. Yeah. And they could take some liberties with Breaking Bad because they are the creators of that. Because they can, like I say, they can, they can change stuff. history. They can rewrite history. Or not necessarily rewrite history, just do something off screen right. in the Breaking Bad timeline that then, that you wouldn't have thought it would have happened. That, or that you would, and, and then reference a, a throwaway line, a seemingly throwaway line from, from Saul. Um, that then they say, see, that's where it was. So they have been known to mess with us. Um, I do not put it, but they've got six episodes left. They're going to, they're going to do something, plant seeds with us throughout that. We're not going to know until the last episode. Um, and, 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 and we're going to be shocked. We're probably going to be sad. I, I because I, here's what I also think, Scott, I, I, but by the time we get to that last episode, which is going to be like the Super Bowl for people like us. This is going to be bigger than this. Might be bigger than the UVA national championship game three years ago for people. Chris, like we're going to be in Charlotte at the ACC football kickoff, and the only thing we're going to be worried about is the last couple of episodes of Better Call Saul. Well, because we the, the, I think the season restarts July 11th. We're there 20th and 21st. We will be talking about this on the drive down, drive back. Yeah, there'll be a month left. We'll be a month left. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest when I say this. I think in in the, the last couple of episodes, we're going to. They're not going to just close the book on Better Call Saul and then and, and then go into Breaking Bad. We're going to know what happens to Jimmy slash Saul um, after. We're, they're going to close the book on this whole cast of characters. Yeah, and, and what we don't, what we know for a fact is that Jimmy doesn't die or Saul. We know that Mike doesn't die. Well, but 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 they don't die before Breaking Bad. Right. Right. I think I think we're going to have a resolution to Saul's story and Kim's story before the end of Better Call. And Saul's story after Breaking Bad, I think, is going to be resolved at, by, in that finale of Better Call Saul. Yeah, um, which makes me just wonder what does Vince Gilligan have? What is next for him? Well, uh, what's next for him after this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's 
you know, we were talking about Ozark and we won't go too far into that, but I, I wish they had not killed off the character of Ruth um, because I would have loved to have seen a spinoff series where yeah. Ozark continues with Ruth uh, being ruthless, <laughs> maybe down the line. But no, yeah, once he kills off, the, once he kills off this story, I mean, worst thing for him is he just sits back on 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 the the multi millions he's earned and and enjoys life. But um, what's next then for Rhea Seahorn? Um, you know, a great actress uh, who you don't want Virginian, to Virginian, by the way. A Virginian, yeah, from from uh, from Norfolk. Um, I was surprised to learn when I researched her, and she's also—I didn't realize—fifty years old. She she looks uh, much younger. She doesn't I'm, look fifty, does she? Doesn't look fifty. And then what's next for um for uh, you know all those actors? We want to see them again. And uh, you know, it was it was funny to see. I, I listened to a podcast uh, recently um, with um, uh, uh, what am I thinking of? The, the host was Al Franken with, uh, with Bob Odenkirk. And I didn't know this about Bob Odenkirk, uh, but they knew each other because they were both fellow Saturday night live writers. Bob Odenkirk never appeared on Saturday night live, but he was a writer for several seasons. Um, and to think that, you know, and he gets, he has a role in the, um, like the, the comedy scenes involving like all the stuff they did to set up Howard and all that kind of stuff. He has a big role in, in helping craft those. And, you know, what's next for him, Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Ehrman. Um, boy, Nacho. I, that's another one I wish hadn't been killed off. They had to for the storyline, but uh, Michael Mando. Wow. As Nacho, man, I tell you what, that guy deserves his own like whole Netflix series. Um, and Lalo too. Lalo is a total asshole and he is so good. He's a, he's between, between Nacho and Lalo, two of the best. I mean, I don't even know Nacho, maybe one of your best sympathetic characters ever. And Lalo is just one of the best bad guys I've ever seen on TV or in movies. Yeah. He's awesome. Now, I don't know. Uh, uh, the um, the chicken man Juan Carlo Esposito. Juan Carlo Esposito. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you watch this, this can, he is in a series on Epic TV called The Godfather of Harlem. Okay. And he plays a great role, and he stars alongside of um, of um, the actor, the um, uh, Whitaker. Forrest uh, Whitaker? Yes. Okay. Yeah, what, who was it again? What's his? Forrest Whitaker? Yes, Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. And Forrest Whitaker is basically the godfather of Harlem, and, and Juan Carlo Esposito is his uh, attorney that tries to keep him one step ahead of the law. I'm trying to think where I just saw Forrest Whitaker. Um, Great was, show. Great show. It's, Forrest it's, Whitaker was a guest at the end of a, a, a something I just saw, and he played a really interesting role. So, yeah, um, I would look forward to that. And, boy, yeah, the, uh, Tony Dalton is the name of the actor who plays Lalo Salamanca. Um, boy, that's uh, – that's it's just fascinating to think, but yeah, we we, we let's, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. We got six episodes of this series left. Yeah, we're already trying to line them up jobs like as though we're their agents or something. I know, well, because we want to see and we want to see we we just don't want this to end. So, um, we'll we'll talk more Better Call Saul when we get closer to July. Um, but for now, let's go. I, I think we should go ahead and wrap up. I'm sure. Let me look real quick, just for for the timing's sake here. Um, nine three Florida State in the sixth. Um, Virginia still losing. So we did a good job, Scott, avoiding having to watch uh, Virginia baseball. As I, I, I got to say, Scott, I think Jerry Ratcliffe and I may have, we may have a Jerry Ratcliffe show jinx. We had uh, Brian O'Connor on as a guest 
the day before they played a series uh, against Miami. And at that time, Virginia was 26 and three. They've been 12 and 12 since about to lose another game. Uh, so um, I think that we need, I don't know what we can do. We got, we got to run some sort of exorcism to get Virginia baseball back on track. Yeah. Well, or maybe we just need some Monmouths and riders and VMIs and some, some pastries on the schedule again, which, you know, there was some discussion that maybe the early season we're getting way on a tangent, but maybe the early season schedule was so weak that it, it didn't give us a real good representation of what this team was going to be about because, you know, they lost a lot of pitching last year. Well, the only thing unfair about that is everybody's early season schedules that week. <laughs> yeah. You look at any top 25 team, um, no one plays a really tough early season schedule. You play you, you, Virginia at that point, I think had played, I think they were seven and two in the ACC. Maybe yeah, it was seven. You're not going to get any SEC teams to come to Charlottesville in early yeah. March. You play, you play teams that are nearby, uh, you know, and so yeah, you, you're, you're stuck with what you got. And, and that's, that's the case for everybody. Uh, you know, unless there's a great team nearby in non-conference, you're going to play who you play. Virginia tech played a similar schedule with Virginia. Uh, they played JMU and VMI uh, and, um, and they've been playing well down the stretch. I think it's I – I don't think it's that, Scott. I think it's a Jerry Ratcliffe show jinx, and we got to work on something about to, to fix that. So, Well, um, maybe you can look at a, uh, an anti-jinx. What could you do? You know, maybe maybe get, um, maybe get um, Dennis Womack on. Dennis Womack, yeah. Or maybe we can get uh, Paul uh, Paul what was it, Paul Maneri, uh, Yeah, the LSU line. coach, right? Yeah, maybe he can maybe he can talk about offering Brian O'Connor a job again, and that might that might exercise the demons. But we got to work on that. But in the meantime, no, this has been a great podcast, Scott. We talked some Better Call Saul. We talked Stephen Strasburg. A lot of fun. Um, thanks to you for your time. Thanks to our listeners out there. Hope you guys had fun as well. Really appreciate your support. Uh, signing off, Chris Graham. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>